Today's episode is sponsored by PNP Arcade, where you can find tabletop games that you can print and play right now. PNP Arcade was created by Jason Greeno of Epic Endeavor Games and Jason Tagmeyer of Buttonshy Games, featuring roll and write games like Paper Pinball, card games like Palm Island, and big games like The Networks. You'll find hand-picked games based on size, quality, attitude, and personality. You'll find over 250 games like Dice Throne, Role Player, Fire in the Library, Mint Co-op, Sprawlopolis, and more. So visit pnparcade.com and join the mailing list. You'll also find brand new games every single Friday. That's pnparcade.com. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about printing, talking about playing, talking about what it looks like to make a print and play for your game, why it's important. And we're talking to a person that I consider to be an expert in that field, a guy that's helped me just learn a tremendous amount in the print and play space. we got Martin Gonzalez on the show. Martin, welcome. Hi. Hi, Gabe. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. It's I know it's <laughs> it's not an easy name to pronounce. It's like Gonzalez, but then we threw in an extra V and a Z in there just to mess people up. <laughs> no worries. Well, man, I have, I have interviewed so many people from around the world, and uh, my Alabama accent does not necessarily do well with people from like Eastern Europe and things like that. So I'm glad I pronounced that one correctly. It is not a given that that happens, and so <laughs> that's good news. But uh, man, I'm excited to talk to you. This is a, a subject that, that really came into my onto my radar I don't know earlier this year I'm um, mm-hmm. 2019 if this if this episode airs in 2020 then if I say earlier this year that's like a week ago but <laughs> so right, right. <laughs> earlier in 2019 uh, it, it just came on my radar as far as being something extraordinarily important is creating a print and play and just you know all the things that go along with it and then opened up this incredible community and so I really want to just dive into all these different ideas that go along with print and play but before we get into that who are you how'd you get into gaming and all that kind of thing all right uh so as you mentioned my name is martin gonzalez and um i uh outside of board gaming i'm a uh technical writer i uh do um i write uh technical training for technicians um you know uh, in, in various fields and i've been doing that for a few years before that i was a technical trainer i actually delivered the training um directly to field technicians for about 10 years and before that i was a field technician myself so i've basically been like you know um in the computers and, and fixing stuff and then writing training for that for about 15 years um and before that, I was a writer uh, and continued to be, you know, so uh, that's my background is I, I, I write um, and then I fix things that break <laughs> technical things and then I uh, write training for them. So that's kind of like my professional background. Um, but as, with respect to uh, board gaming in general and print and play in particular, uh, I'm fairly new to that world. Like I came to this 
in 2017, in late 2017, uh, I played my first modern board game. It was Eldritch Horror. And then I just fell down the rabbit hole and I loved it. And then in January of 2018, I discovered uh, print and play. Uh, the game, the very first game uh, that I discovered that was a print and play game was um, a game called Agent Decker. And this is designed by a gentleman named Manuel Correa. And he uh, had um, submitted this game. He had designed this game for the 2015 Solitaire Print and Play uh, Game Design Contest on Board Game Geek. And um, he took second place, I believe. And he get a whole bunch of awards. And um, it just blew my mind that you could go online and, and for free, because he was offering this up for free, uh, that um, you could find really high quality games. And then you could download the file, the PDF. You could print it out on your home computer. You could cut up the cards. And believe me, that first print and play effort of mine was super primitive. Like I printed it out on cardstock. I knew I knew how to do that much. And then I cut them. I didn't even have card backs or anything. Like it looked, it looked horrible. It looked super janky. But um, in about an hour or so, I suddenly had this game. And I was playing it, and it was a solitaire stealth. You're your spy, and you're trying to get into this complex. And it's super tough. You know, as as you, as, as you know, you want your solos, your solo games to be super tough and challenging, right? Like, and and you're a, you're an expert at doing that. Um, and and that was kind of like my experience with this. And so that that was my my gateway drug into the world of print and play. And I want, I, I was hooked, and I wanted to find out more. And so. You know, I just thought, what what else is out there? What else? And there there's so many files on Board Game Geek. There's there you know contest games that get posted into the Board Game Geek database, and then you know they just kind of drift into obscurity. You know, and and they're there, and this, this some of these are really really good, and some of these are by designers who eventually went on to have like far more successful like published or kickstarted games, but. Their earlier efforts are are out there as as a free print and play, or maybe a print and play that's available for a couple of bucks, you know. And uh, it's it's I just find it a fascinating world, um, and so that's that's kind of initially why I got into it. Yeah, definitely. And now, as we kind of get more into this, what exactly is a print and play? Like, give me a good working definition. Uh, let's pretend that somebody listening to this has never even heard of the concept print and play. What is that exactly? Sure. So a print and play uh, game is essentially a, a digital file, like a PDF or portable document format um, that the designer would post, you know, online on, a, on their website or on boardgamegeek.com or on a site like pnprk.com. There's a, you know, there's a number of sites now where you can get these things for free or for, for paid. Right. And, um, and, and then you download the file. Uh, to your home computer or your home device, and then you print it out on your home computer or you put it on a flash drive, take it to FedEx Kinko's or Staples or whatnot and print it out there if you don't have a home computer, I'm sorry, a home printer. And then um, and then you essentially make the game yourself. Uh, and the fascinating thing about it for me is the the components, the materials you use to create the game, that's entirely up to you. You can use whatever paper you like. Um, you know, just, just plain printer paper. Um, so you, you could essentially just print out a plain printer paper, cut it up with scissors, pair that, you know, image, that, that card with an old playing card, put it in a playing card sleeve, and that would be a very kind of basic way 
to make a print and play game. And as long as you can play it, as long as it's functional, then that's fine. Now, there are uh, people in the print and play word, world, such as myself and you know <laughs> others, who like to uh, be a little more intricate, a little more kind of sophisticated with their print and plays. And you get to some real specialized folks who have a lot of supplies and a lot of like, you know, materials to be able to make cards, folding boards, um, tokens out of just every kind of material. They, they sculpt sometimes. They, um, and, and, and they can make uh, versions of these games that rival or even exceed the quality that you could get from a retail game. Um, you know, so the print and play runs the, the whole spectrum from just folks who want to be able to print a print and play a game out for themselves at home. And they don't really care how it looks. They just care that it's playable all the way to the other end of the spectrum where folks want to make games that, um, that aren't necessarily available, you know, uh, retail, um, but they want to have super high quality and they'll expand. Like you'll, if you want to make a print and play game as, as fancy and blinged out, you could actually spend as much or more, you know, than you would spend on a typical retail game. So it, it, it runs the whole spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. I've been blown away by some people's builds and it's kind of actually happened with uh, one of my games, one of my hunted games. I remember I sent you the files and you were kind enough to kind of create a, a print and play a version and, and then you you know, posted a video of like playthrough online and your version was way better than my <laughs> prototype version and it just looks so good. And I was like, wow, I've got to get on, on Martin's level. <laughs> these you. prototypes are not going to, they're not going to do. And so it, it's amazing how, how people can just create them, just wonderful works of art out of these print and play you. files. What what is it that draws people to that? You know, you you've been in the print and play for a little while now. You know a lot of people online. You run your own Facebook community. Why are those people involved? Like, what what has kind of brought them in to where they want to make a print and play versus like you're saying? Sometimes you can they'll, they'll spend more money on the print and play and doing it yeah. themselves than they would have had they just gone out to the store and bought it. So, what is the the reason yeah. for that? Why why do they do that? Why are people drawn to the print and play? That's a really great question, Gabe. So. One thing I've discovered, and I've been doing this now for a couple of years, and there are people who've been doing it a lot longer than me. Uh, there are people, I, I know some people who've done over 500 print and play builds, right? <laughs> and wow. so um, if you think about like the typical board game hobbyist collector, um, you know, they they go online or whatever, or they talk to their friends or they go to game night and they see a game and they're like, okay, I like that game. I want my own copy. And then they will go to their friendly local game store or we're online games or whatever, and they'll buy a copy. And then they have the game. So so that to them, that's the level of their hobby is I play a game, I'm interested in the game, I buy a game, now I have a game, it's in my, it's in my collection, I can play it. And then I buy another one, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the extent of the hobby for you. Uh, it, it could also extend to like, if you were into miniatures and I, I like to paint miniatures, then that's a sub, that's a sub, you know, genre or of, of, of the main hobby, which is like board gaming. And I have found that with print and play, it's actually two hobbies in one, right? Because not only are you in print and play because you uh, are interested in a game and they, there happens to be a digital version of it and you want to make it, um, but there's the, the the completely separate part of it is uh, the crafting that goes into it, the selection of the materials, the um, the figuring out of techniques, the experimentation with 
uh, I've personally experimented with half a dozen different ways just to make playing cards <laughs> because you know like that 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 subgenre in itself is you want to get playing cards that are as close to a retail playing card as possible which is actually very hard to do because retail playing cards are made using specialized machines they have specialized uh, materials coding and all that to get that to get that card that feels like paper but has a kind of you know laminated feel uh, and then has a snap to it. Achieving that with just what's available at a Staples or whatever is surprisingly difficult, almost ridiculously hard. But there are people who chase that that kind of dream of, I want to be able to make playing cards on my own that are indistinguishable, that feel indistinguishable from a retail playing card. And that's just cards. Let's not even start talking about tokens because actually... Uh, I have found that uh, the the paradox is that like you know when when people buy a game you know retail game whatever they almost never think about the tokens whereas <laughs> from a print to play standpoint tokens are some of the hardest things to produce uh, especially circular tokens are, the, are ridiculously hard um, and can be very, very time-consuming. I, I consider them my, my personal bane of my existence. And every time, uh, no offense, because I know uh, when, I, when I made Hunted, you had circle tokens in them. <laughs> I had to learn my lesson somehow, you know. <laughs> and circle tokens are nice. Like, they're obviously nicer than square tokens, Um or hexagonal tokens, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, these are these are things that you don't think about if you're not if you've never print made a print and play game. But once you start getting into it, you're like, oh man, it it's actually super time consuming, and it takes a lot of work to be able to make these circle tokens. And then you're like, there's got to be an easier way, and that forces you to kind of like look for experiment with alternative ways. To it's basically like we were talking about earlier before we started recording. Game design is about problem solving. Well making print and play games is also about problem solving. You know, like how do you solve the problem of making a, a, a circle token? And we could go into actual techniques, but I've again experimented with at least half a dozen different techniques of just making tokens. Um, and then, you know, making a folding board, making a bifold or a quad fold board. That's, that's, that's another you know, order of, of, of magnitude of complexity uh, that requires you to really have like complex problem solving, you know, solve complex problems. So it's, 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 uh, it's fascinating. And it's, it's, uh, you can really get, some, I know a lot of people who make the games and then don't even end up playing them because really they're more into it for the crafting aspect of it than they are in the actual playing of it. Um you know, which is yeah, like that fascinating. Was, that was going to be yeah. one of my one of my next questions is, do you think people are more invested, you know, when they, when they, they have to spend five hours, 10 hours, how many hours working to put this thing together? Do they feel more invested that then they you know, hold on to it longer or play it more or play it more often? But you're saying maybe not even that might not even be the case. With a lot of people, they, they're just in it to, to do the build. And then, all right, where's the next one I can build? It's almost like, like <laughs> building models, you know, like little yeah. uh, railroads or something like that. You build it and it's like, OK, let's build the next one. 
Yeah, well, in just the same way that there's, like, gamers run a whole spectrum of people from, you know, people who are into it just for, like, uh, uh, light gaming or fillers or social deduction or whatever, all the way at the other end of the spectrum when you have, like, you know, hard, hardcore strategy gamers, whatnot, uh, print-and-play folks, enthusiasts, also run the gamut, right? Like, from one end, you have, like, folks who are just like, I want to build a simple nine-card game, and I want to play it, you know? And I'm not going to really spend a lot of time. I don't want to spend a lot of time, like, you know, blinging it out or, or, or chasing the perfect card. I just want it playable. All the way at the other end where you have folks who are just like, I'm, I'm into this for the technical challenge of it. The game is almost secondary, <laughs> you know. But, um, yes, but, but uh, it's, 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 a, it's a really deep hobby. It's um, not shared by a, a – if you think about, like, Table people who are into modern tabletop games are already kind of like a very small percentage of the general society. Um, let's let's just throw a number out there and say maybe one percent of society is actually serious tabletop gamers. Then I, I would say a further one percent of that one percent are folks who are into print and who even a know about print and play and uh, b uh, actually you know like are, are into it and and active participants in the community. Um, and hopefully there'll be more after this podcast comes out, but um, I, I I love it. I and and there are just some really great people in the community, and and there's this this, this whole element of folks who just once once you figure out a great way to like make something, make a card, make a token, make a board, whatever you want to share it, you want to share with other people, and then if they they try your technique and they're like, wow, you know, like that was really cool. Thank you for that. And by the way, in the process of it, I kind of remixed it and this is what I tried. And then you can get a conversation going between folks. And then, you know, like they're, they're like, yeah, they can start collaborating. It's like, um, and, and you, you, uh, iterated on, on my technique, you know? So there's kind of, there's a lot of that going on in the, there's a lot of give and take within the print and play community. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do a, a podcast on on this particular topic, because the community is amazing. And it's also a wonderful place, one, to learn. You know, if you're a game designer, you're going to make prototypes. And so learning these different techniques on how to make tokens, how to make uh, foldable boards, how to make the better cards that are that are more than just, you know, printed out pieces of paper. It, it's it, it matters. It's important. And so one, I want to talk from that angle. But then also, just as a gamer, getting into this community, it's, it's such a welcoming place it's so many good people and like you're saying that people are constantly ready to give you feedback give you new ideas give you new techniques and things like that and so i just want to encourage you know anybody listening to this check it out we'll give you some uh, places to go in just a minute uh, as far as different you know facebook groups and, and online communities we'll talk about that towards the end of the show and then another thing is that print and play is just a therapeutic kind of thing i think this is something i found actually last night i was working on a prototype actually a game that you're kind of helped me out with with some of the the playtesting and yep. different things right now. One I'm really excited about and I was yep. cutting out cards and I was, and what was so great is that it had been a long day and I could just sit there, turn my brain off, cut down the line, right. And, and not have to think about anything else. Let my brain just kind of wander to anything and nothing. And it was just kind of nice. So, so I think there's also that aspect to it as well is it's, it's a craft, you know? And so you can just kind of, you can do a whole lot of problem solving or just turn your brain off and enjoy the moment of not having to think about anything other than how am I going to cut out this next card? And so I think that's why it's so important for, designers and publishers to be aware of like doing it in a way that isn't frustrating. And so yeah. let's get into maybe some yeah. best practices. If I'm a designer uh-huh. and I, and I want to uh, reach out to this community, I want to, you know, help out and, and send print and play files out into the world, whether it's just for play testing or actually, you know, I'm going to make a real legitimate thing that maybe I offer for free or sell or something like that. Give me some best practices of things I need to be thinking about 
to make it easier for people that print it out, cut it out, and then eventually play it? Perfect. I love that question because so few people are actually asking this question. There's a lot of variability um, in terms of the qualities of print and play files that different designers and different, um, you know, uh, outfits put out there. And and so there's not one real um, standardized way of doing it. And so as somebody who's like a a print and play enthusiast, um, you know, uh, uh, you could, uh, the, the degree of difficulty, the degree of complexity in terms of how to produce something becomes a lot harder if the the person who made the file, the designer or the graphic designer, whoever it is, um, did not, you know, consider certain things about like how how to make their files, I'll, uh, I'll talk about cards, right? So, um, to me, and, and and this other thing is like, you know, please don't take what I say as the preferred way or the standard way. There are, as I like to joke, there are as many different preferences for, um, you know print and play file formats as there are people in the print and play community. But I'll tell you what I like, right? Okay, so um, if you have a, a playing card size or poker size cards in your game, um, to me, the best way to present those is as a grid of nine cards on a U.S. letter size sheet of paper. Um, and uh, I like there to be crosshairs at small, like, you know, uh, almost barely, barely visible crosshairs at each corner of each card that serve as guides. Because when you print out this sheet and you want to go ahead and cut those cards into indiv- the, that sheet into individual cards, then it's nice to have those corner crosshairs as guides. Um, because what a lot of people do is they'll just like, you know, put the card and then they'll like let the outline of the card serve as your cutting guide, which works most of the time, except when you have uh, cards of similar colors that bleed into each other. Then then the outlines between the cards are not so well defined. Then now you're kind of stuck with kind of guesswork, right? <laughs> Uh, I'll have to break out a ruler and measure, um, you know, like the, the images and then kind of figure out what is because the size of a poker size card is two and a half inches wide by three and a half inches tall. So now I've got to figure out, OK, uh, this is the two and a half inch mark. So that's probably the, the boundary or the, the end of this one card and the start of the next, et cetera, et cetera. And so now now you've just. Uh, if you didn't put those corner crosshairs as a guide for cutting, then you've forced the person who's making your file to kind of do that work for themselves. If they care about um, if they care about stuff like precision or making sure that the cards are of uniform size or whatnot, you know. So I think as a courtesy, um, designers who are making a print and play file is specifically to be distributed to their to their customer base, to their Kickstarter backers, to their whoever, as as a um, you know like as something that they intend for them to uh, to print out, uh, they need to like do these extra things um, to prepare their files to make them easy to print and play. And I think ultimately the best way to do that is if you're a designer, if you're a graphic designer, you need to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's going to print out your file, and you need to kind of go through the motions of what is what would they have to do to be able to do that? And then identify the pain points. And then how do I make it easier for them? How do, for that, uh, for that person to print and play this game? 
Yeah, definitely. Now we don't have to name names, but I've seen some some uh, publishers out there do some things that maybe are a little bit questionable. For instance, putting one card per page. So yeah. you know, if your if your game has 150 cards, well, that's 150 pages in your PDF. We got one card per yeah. page. Now, why why is that a bad solution? And let's let's talk through maybe some of the other ideas that just aren't good things to do that people do. It's like that you wish they wouldn't. Well, so that's one thing that that some people do, and and I think it's because. And, and you'll have to help me fill in for this because I, I've never submitted, um, you know, digital game files for professional publishing. But I, I, I assume it's because uh, that's how professional like publishing uh, uh, houses want it. They they want a a one image like a one card per page. Uh, yes, you are. You're correct, and it's kind of the uh, publishing company or the designer being lazy and just giving you the print player the same exact file that they yeah. gave to the printer and saying, "Here you go." Uh, exactly. Yeah, because there are a lot of printers that just want one card per page, and, and it makes sense for what they're doing. Maybe not for what you're doing. Exactly right. So um, that is would be a sign of a of an outfit or a publisher, or I'm sorry, a designer or a graphic or whoever who isn't willing to go that extra mile and show empathy for, you know, the folks who are going to be producing their file, especially if that, that person is, is charging for the print and play file, you know, um, print and play files are like, you know, depending on the game, they can go from five bucks, 10 bucks. Um, I've, I've actually paid the, the most I've paid for an official print and play file is $20. And that was for the, uh, print and play file of a uh, role player, which I produced uh, in late 2018, which was a massive build and uh, took me three days. <laughs> to, but but um, uh, and, and by the way, it was a really really good file. You know, like that that's an example. Thunderworks Games, kudos to them. That's an example of a, a print and play file that that uh, was very professionally done. Uh, by the way, I will I will definitely give kudos to another outfit that does it right. Uh, Gamelin Games, Gamelin Games, the uh, makers of the Tiny Epic series. They, I consider them to be the gold standard of uh, print and play files because when you spend your eight dollars, that's what they charge. Like if I wanted to get uh, Tiny Epic Galaxies in print and play form and then make it myself, I can give them eight dollars and uh, they will send me the digital files, and they will not give it to me in just one for one layout. They will give it to me in the nine card grid that I described earlier, they will also give it an, a set, totally separate file, the whole, the whole game in a totally separate layout, which is called um, uh, gutter gutter fold, which is essentially where you have four card fronts on, on one column. And then their corresponding card backs on the second column. And, and the rationale there is you print out one page and then you just fold it right down the middle. You fold the fronts onto the back, so it's, it actually makes it easier to align the front and the back. Um, and Gamelin will give you basically two entire different sets of print and play files. One for one for the the uh, nine card grid folks, folks who prefer nine card grid, and then a whole other set for folks who prefer the gutter the gutter fold, um, or what, what Gamelin calls it orc orc PNP ORC PNP. But that's that's a heck of a lot of value. Like that's an example of a company that really under they really get it. They understand um, not only that somebody will have to print and play your file, but that not all people 
there there isn't one format that's best for everybody and so they'll give you a couple of different formats like that that just blew my mind when i saw that and that's why from a print and play standpoint i'm a huge fan of uh of gambling gambling games um yeah now what are what are some of the other things that they do that kind of make them the gold standard so uh other things like um when you have a sheet of circle tokens um you have to make sure that there is ample space between each image because ideally I'm going to go in there with what's called a circle punch and um, I'm going to have to punch that out. But when you use a circle punch, if there's not enough space between the, the images of the circle tokens, well, you're going to end up punching one and then chewing into a portion of the next image. There's not going to be enough space to, so, so you won't be able to, uh, to basically uh, punch them out. And so now if you don't have enough space, what you've forced me to do as the print and player is take your digital file into my image editor, um, cup, copy and paste those uh, those images into a new layout and add this, the necessary kind of gutter space in between them uh, so that I can then print that out again and then um, and then uh, uh, um, you know uh, get in there with my circle punch so um, that in other words like when when folks like you know make sheets of tokens, a lot of the time, they're not really thinking about like how is this actually going to be printed and produced. All they're all they're concerned about is how can I get uh, optimize the number of images that I can cram onto one U.S. letter page, you know, and that doesn't set you up for success when you're trying to make those tokens. Gotcha. And so, all right, so Tiny Epic Galaxies has a bunch of custom dice. So, how in the world oh, yeah. do they do the print and play for that? I remember them well. There are seven custom dice in Tiny Epic Galaxies, and so what they'll do is, and anybody anybody who wants to give me a give printer players a file of custom dice is, um, you will uh, give us the images in, in to the right size, the correct size, and then we would print those out. Like I would, if I was making custom dice right now, I would print those out to a full page uh, sticker label sheet. Um, and then I would painstakingly cut out each face and then I would, um, stick each face to, uh, each, each image to the face of a, to the corresponding face of a blank die. And you can get blank dice from, uh, from Amazon. You can get them from, you know, uh, teacher supply stores, craft supply stores, um, uh, the game crafter is a great source of, uh, you know, game components and stuff like that. So, yeah. So. Essentially, I uh, printed out those tiny images for each one of those dice, and I uh, cut them out, and then I stuck the stickers onto each face. And I did that times seven, <laughs> because there are seven custom dice in, uh, in Tiny Epic Galaxies. Yeah. Now, is there another method you've seen? I, I know some oh. people, you know, they, they say, okay, here are the corresponding uh, D six side. So, you know, a, a one pip is this yeah. custom image, you know, is that kind of thing. It, that, I guess that works fairly well. Any other ways that uh, you've seen for print yeah, play yeah. for custom dice? So, um, uh, a number of games, like I, the one that springs to mind is a, a game called deep space D six, um, from, uh, Tau leader games, I believe. Uh, I forget the name of the designer right now. Um, and, uh, what he did was he's got some custom dice, uh, in this game, but he's also included a, uh, kind of conversion table. So you can play it with regular D sixes and then you can just kind of 
match up your D6 result, uh, you know, pip result to that actually matches up to this symbol, this custom symbol, which means this result, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that works too. Um, now, in terms of actually producing um, custom dice, there is a technique called the water slide decal, which I have not done myself, but I've, I'm familiar with folks who have done it, where essentially, um, I think you can buy these, uh, which you can print the image onto a particular special uh, paper. And then when that paper is exposed to water, it'll transfer the image from the paper to the die. And so give you a much more professional kind of produced custom dice where you don't actually have a sticker that's kind of, you know, slightly uh, uh, sticking out from the surface of the die. Um, it's actually like this image has been transferred almost like an iron on patch <laughs> or uh, one of those, like say uh, tattoos, like those, those temporary tattoos that, that, you know, you buy for the kids, whatnot. And then yeah. they put a little butterfly on their arm or whatnot. And I think it's a similar technique, uh, water slide decal. Uh, I have not done it myself, but uh, it, it I've seen people do it and you get some really, really nice custom dice that way. Okay. And now what about like custom components or not even necessarily custom, but like extra components like cubes or meeples or miniatures or something like that. What, what can I expect a print and play you know, person to provide versus what do I need to provide? Just kind of meet them halfway. That's a great question. Uh, thank you for that one. So I am a big fan of a print, a complete print and play file. In other words, um, I, I appreciate a print-and-play file that gives me a printable version of pretty much everything I would need to uh, to play the game. And so um, if there are cubes, I would actually appreciate, uh, you know, like images of cubes like, <laughs> that I could print out and then I could stick to some sort of backing or whatever. Um, because people who are just getting into print-and-play, they don't really have a lot of supplies yet or they don't know where to get supplies. Um, I've been print and play for a couple of years now, so as you can imagine, I have I have cabinets and drawers filled with just supplies that I have um, amassed over the years, from Euro cubes to um, glass beads, various colors, to uh, pawns and tokens, and I will actually go and purchase supplies even if I don't have a particular game project in mind, which is kind of bananas, um, you know, because I know that eventually I'll need them, um, you know, and you can go to a number of different places. But essentially, so to answer your question, um, as if you're a designer and there's something that you want to be in your game, um, I would say, you know, like in, in the, because, you know, a lot of people provide uh, like how to print and play my game instructions, right? And then you can uh, list, you know, you're going to need 20 red cubes and 20 green cubes and 20 blue cubes. And a lot of people are going to go out and actually like either they already have those in stock or they will go to a place like the Game Crafter or Amazon, like these like educational cubes, whatnot. And uh, you can also buy like natural wooden cubes and then you could color them with Sharpie markers or with watercolor. Like a lot, of, I've seen a lot of people do stuff like that or they'll go to their Home Depot and then they will um, actually buy wood and then, you know, craft them themselves, uh, you know, like use saws or whatnot. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different ways. But 
there's there's going to be a great percentage of people who uh, either don't have these yet, uh, haven't built up a supply yet, or just have no idea. And so they're just going to go ahead and print out whatever you give them. Um, so you could just I, so so give me give me a printable version, but also suggest alternatives is is ultimately the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also, you know, I've run into situations sometimes where I'll have a prototype that I'm trying to play one of mine or someone else's and it'll say, okay, you need 17 red cubes. And I look through all my stuff and I've got 15. It's like, well, I guess I'll use two (laughs) orange ones for the, you know, and it's just kind of frustrating. And so it is nice to have just as an option to be able to print something out and, and make it work. Again, you're trying to make it as easy as possible for that person to be able to cut the thing out, get it printed and, and labeled and glued and what all the uh, crafting that they're going to do to it as easy as possible, then that they can get it to their table, especially if they're you know helping you out with some play testing or, or something like that. Now, any Absolutely. other best practices? Well, let me ask you this real quick. So we mentioned a, a moment ago that square tokens are better than circular tokens. So <laughs> is it is it worth it for me to go in and, and make my token square if they're normally you know circles if if the manufactured version is going to be circle but for me to go and change the file make them square just to make it easier is that a good thing to do um i would say no in fact i think the best the the for me the ideal way to provide absolutely if you want to provide circle to if you're as a designer you want to provide circle tokens for your game absolutely provide those circle tokens um but me personally and i've done this for myself for like you know files that i've produced um I will place that circle inside of a hexagon. And so I'm going to have a sheet of um, circles inside of a hexagon. So uh, specifically, I'm thinking of a project I did a few months back where I made a uh, retheme of, uh, of, of a particular uh, game. And um, I provided some uh, tokens, some circle tokens, um, as part of my retheme. But I provided them inside of these hexagons. And so... What that does for the for the print and player is it gives them the option. If you're a print and player who has the specialized equipment um, to be able to produce circle tokens, so basically to do it right, you need a circle punch of the correct size. Um, so, for example, me, I have a one inch punch. I have a three quarters inch circle punch. I have a one point five inch circle punch, one and a quarter. I've got a whole bunch of a whole range of circle punches at this point. So, I could pretty much produce any any conceivable size of circle token um, that anybody might want to include in the game. But if you're not that kind of person, well, you can still, because a, a hexagon has, you know, uh, you, you can still cut those out with scissors. And so you could uh, make hex tokens rather than circle tokens. And those would be roughly the same size as a, a, you know, equivalent circle token. They're easier to produce because you can cut them with scissors or uh, with a straight edge, you know, with a rotary cutter and a ruler. And um, so so it's more inclusive and it gives the the option to the uh, to the print and player. And so I was I found it really gratifying that when people made my retheme version, a lot of them did circle tokens and they stuck them on poker chips, which is, by the way, a great pro tip. I'm, I'm a big fan of, because like, you can go to the thrift store and buy just a whole bunch of like cheap poker chips, like really nice thick ones that feel great and sound great on a table. Um, and then you can just put sticker images on them. And then you have these like, really nice deluxe feeling circle tokens and you didn't spend a lot of money on them. 
which is a whole nother aspect which we can talk about, which is going to the raiding the thrift stores for uh, for print and play components. I'm a huge fan of that as well. Um, but back to the topic, right? Or, or uh, there's other folks that made my retheme, and they made the they chose to make the tokens as hexes, which actually ended up looking really really cool. You know, so I would say don't be afraid of including circles, but give them an option. Yeah, definitely. And that's something I, you know, I hadn't really thought about until I got into the print and play scene is make it a hexagon. Like don't make it a circle. Circles are extraordinarily difficult to cut out. Hexagons yeah. are much easier when you have it already you know, lined out for you. Any other best practices, any other things that when, when you see a file, you're like, wow, I'm so glad they, they did it this way. So glad that they did this certain thing in any of the yeah. other components or cards or anything like that. Yeah, great question. So um, I'm a huge fan of this book. I've gone through several phases in my in my print and play. Uh, I started out simple, it went to more increasingly complex, and then kind of like when I built Role Player uh, late 2018 was kind of like the 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 highest point of. I was really challenging myself in terms of how close can I get my own print and play efforts to be almost indistinguishable from a retail game. That was kind of like a challenge that I set out for myself. And then I did that for a while. It's very time consuming. It's very tiring. And then once I, once I did that, once I basically climbed the Mount Everest of print and play, just so to speak, <laughs> and proven it all to myself, I'm like, okay, I got nothing left to prove. Um, for me personally, I don't need to challenge myself about these things anymore. So, but what did I learn? And now I'm in a phase where I'm like, I, I, I have used everything that I've learned to kind of like, well, what's the fastest and most efficient way for me to make things that are for me to get from zero to, I now have a deck of cards in my hand. Right. And, 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 and so where I've landed now in, in my personal kind of, and so when I made hunted uh, Kobayashi tower, your game in particular, I was able to produce the cards very quickly because uh, you were very kind. Well, uh, you, your initial file only had card fronts, did not yet have the card backs. And so I made the card backs for them. Um, and so that leads me to the point, kind of a very roundabout way of answering your question. Another best practice is always provide your files as uh, double-sided printable, uh, capable of being what's called double-sided print for double-sided printing or duplex printing right where if you have card fronts and if you have card backs allow me the option of just being able to print out those two pages and say in my in my printer software print these double sided and when i print them out the correct back lines up with its corresponding front you'll be surprised how many people don't do that they'll just they'll just of course it doesn't matter like in a if 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 the if the car if the backs are all the same and it doesn't matter then but there are games where there's a particular back that has to go with a particular front. And if you didn't format them so that they can gracefully print, you know, uh, double sided front to back on the same sheet of cardstock, then now you've just doomed the print and play person making your game to re-editing that file if they have the skills, re-editing that file in an image editor to put it in duplex or they will print out the back separately, cut them separately, and attach match back to front separately, which is very time consuming. Or they just won't make the backs at all. You know, so 
yeah, definitely s- submit them for, capable for duplex printing is a is a great best practice. Yeah. Now, how do I do that exactly so that it does line up so it's mirrored correctly and all that? Yeah, that's a great question. So it requires a little bit of like you know spatial like uh, thinking in a couple of different dimensions, right? So if you imagine a grid of nine cards, and if you imagine the card in the top left corner of this page, and that's the front then the succeeding page, if it was the card backs, then I would have to make sure that the back for that card in the top left is on the top right of the, of the succeeding page. If that makes sense, it's, it's kind of hard to, you know, visualize it. I know I'm describing it. Um, And then if the card is in the middle column, then, you know, let's say top middle, then it's corresponding back on the following page would be in the top middle as well. And then if the card is in the top right column of the the front, then it's corresponding back should appear on the top left uh, column of the, of the, of the backs. If I, if that makes sense at all. Um, yeah, it's definitely. easier for me to draw it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, again, if you're, if you're printing on this three by three grid, it's just a matter of mm-hmm. kind of turning your brain around and also probably just trying it yourself. That's one thing me and drew the graphic designer for a lot of my games, he just had to do it and then print it out and go, Oh no, that's wrong. And then do it again and print it out and go, Oh, that's closer. And he just kind of some trial and error before sending it out and saying, Hey guys, here's, here's my file. And so I think that also goes along way with people is actually you know doing the the groundwork to do it yourself and make sure it's all good to go and then send it out into the world yeah the the the, ultimately the the best best practice that i can think of is something that you had done and a a bunch of other folks have done is they'll actually seek out people within the print and play community and then they'll say something like um, hey you know I'm, i'm designing this game um, you know, these are my plans for it, whether I'm going to go to Kickstarter or whatever the heck it is that I want to do. Um, but I also want to, I'm very interested in putting out a print and play version. And before I do that, I want to learn from you folks, like what, just, just ask, <laughs> right. Is, is really the best way. Um, ask what people like and, and be prepared because you're going to get like, uh, a dozen answers, a different, different answers. And, um, but if you come to a place like say, uh, unabashed plug, if you come to a place like, uh, my Facebook group, the print and Martin's print and play hideaway. Um, you know, we've gotten into a groove, a rhythm where like, you know, if we're very welcoming to, uh, you know, designers who come in and they, they want them, they want to know more, they want to ask questions and we kind of like break it down for them. It's like, Hey, there's a couple of different ways that people like prefer it, prefer their files to be. Some people like it this one way and we'll describe it. Some people will like it this other way, describe, it, we'll give examples. And then, you know, we've gotten feedback from, you know, some folks who've, who've actually gone through that process. It's like, Hey, thanks so much. Like I, you know, I learned a lot. Um, and, and we're getting the word out there. Like, you know, we're getting more and more people, uh, you know, just kind of, uh, understanding that if you just ask the, the community, um, you know, we'll, we'll let you know what's, uh, what are, what are some of the things that we like? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's something that, that I found to be definitely the case. You know, every question that, that either I had or that Drew had, you know, y'all, y'all had an answer for it and you, and you said it in a, a kind way, you were very welcoming and, and that kind of thing. And so yeah, Martin's print and play hideaway is a wonderful, wonderful Facebook group to, to join just to kind of get involved in this community and then also to get help and, and also maybe find some people to play test your game or, you know, to, yeah. to kind of help you create these files and things like that. But Martin, you. You, you probably have some people right now sitting there thinking, you know, listen to this and they're going, wow, that sounds like a lot of work. It sounds like a lot of work to put these files together and just to have people maybe play my game, maybe play test my game. What would you tell those people, you know, they're designers, they're looking at it, it's like, yeah, it is a lot of work. What would you tell them as far as the value 
of it, you know, from your perspective and why they should take that, take that jump and actually create these files, do it the right way, do it best practices. What, why is it so valuable? That's a great question, right? Like, because from a, from a raw number standpoint, you know, like I said earlier, the number of people within the print and play who either are even aware of print and play and then who are like active members of the print and play community might be a very small percentage of the total population of board gamers, right? So you're not really addressing a massive, massive, massive audience. Uh, my, my print and play hideaway has a little bit over a thousand members at this point. Um, we've been in existence since, uh, July of this year. Um, there's another large, larger, older group called print and play gaming. That's been around for, uh, three, three or so years. And, um, they have about like seven, 8,000 members at this point, I would imagine. Um, you know, so you're not, you're not talking about like, you know, especially if you talk about like some of these board game groups with like 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 subscribers, you know? So, um, but but uh, when you are providing a print and play file, you are uh, addressing a bunch of people who are who've kind of they've kind of self-selected themselves into a very rarefied and kind of exclusive club. Um, and so, you know, you're you're addressing folks who um, have a very very high order of involvement in both the hobby of gaming and they've gone, they've penetrated beyond that first level into the hobby of like, you know, how to actually make games and solve these types of problems. So you're talking about folks and a lot of us are also designers. A lot of us have gone and done, um, you know, contests on board game geek as well. Um, a lot of folks are just like, so, so print and play for me became a gateway to eventually like saying, well, I can make these things. Maybe I could explore making my own design. So you're essentially talking to a whole bunch of folks with a whole bunch of discriminating taste and a whole, and, and who can be very, very influential. And also just for good to, to, to enter into, engage into like a discussion or a conversation with. So I would say, you know, um, it's, I, I think from the perspective of it's just always good to have like folks on your side. Folks have a, a positive impression of you as someone who um, supports us, supports our community, kind of, you know, is, is open to um, a niche uh, uh, people who are in, in, involved in a, a kind of a niche within the larger hobby of board gaming, um, you know, but yeah. I just think, you know, like it's, 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 it's encouraging goodwill. It's encouraging goodwill in a not insignificant uh, niche within the board gaming community. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also a way to create raving fans. You know, like you're saying <laughs> people that if you, if you provide a quality product, you know, with, with all these best practices and make it easy and that kind of thing, and, and you do do something on with an with excellence, then they're not just going to keep it to themselves. I mean, you and I were talking before the show, which, before we started recording, like you post constantly in all these different groups, posting playthroughs and posting ideas and giving fe people feedback and posting puns and, and memes, all these things. You were constantly posting on a wide range of different Facebook groups and different places online. And there's a whole lot of other people doing the same thing. And so if, if I provide to you, Martin, or to some of the other people in that community, a, a quality game, quality print and play, quality experience, you're not just going to go, thank you, and then go off into the sunset. No, you're, you're going to post about it other places. And so yeah. it helps with the marketing of things. If you've got a Kickstarter, if you've got a game coming out, it, it just it goes a long way. And I'm actually reminded, some of my, this is something I picked up from uh, Gary Vaynerchuk years ago. This is before he really became anywhere near as big as he is now. But mm -hmm. his whole concept was one is greater than zero. 
And right. he did he did this video. And he said, you know, I will I will go on a YouTube channel and do an interview with somebody who has 15 subscribers because I'm hoping that one person that watches that video is going to go out and buy my next book or whatever. And his whole mentality was one is greater than zero. You know, right. getting up and just doing one lap is infinitely more than everybody sitting on the couch. And so I think that's another thing just to think about is, is don't worry so much about the numbers. Worry more, much more about excellence and doing things, you know, with pride and, and best practices. And yeah, I trusting, love you, yeah, yeah, and then trusting that it's, it's going to go a lot further than that. I love it. It's 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 a way. It's it's basic. It's basically it's a cliche, right? But it's it's true. It's like you you just have to make that connection. That that person to person connection, or that i person to idea to person connection, and just get somebody who's like a a raving fan. I mean, because that that that's how it was for you and me. You know, when uh when when I I don't even know how uh, I got to know of hunted um hunted Kobayashi Tower. I think it was in some sort of um, just a board game geek mail or whatever the heck it was. But when I saw it, you know, so it's like, this is coming soon. And I'm like, oh my gosh, somebody's actually crazy enough to make a, to make their own version, their own spin on a, on a die, a, a diehard quote unquote game, um, diehard ish game. Um, and I was like, I was, I was hooked from the get go. And I'm like, who is this guy? Subscribe, follow, like what's going on? Give me, give me all your updates. And then, you know, like when the, when it came and then, you, and then I actually like, you know, um, learned that it was going to be coming out and then i'm like and then i i don't i don't even know how it was whether did i reach out to you personally and say hey uh gabe uh you know it would be really cool if you could give me access to the print and play files i think i think that's how it was you know and um it was off and running but i was like super just enthusiastic about your uh your idea your game concept and the point of view right and i mean the fact that you're tapping into two of my greatest um uh kind of childhood um you know fandoms right <laughs> aliens and diehard i mean like wow you know you 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 you've hooked me right there and then when it turns out that you know i i i got to make the print and play and then i got to realize man this is a really cool solo game it's fast playing it's super smooth it's got a lot of like push your luck elements it's got a lot of tension in it um it doesn't overstay its welcome like I mean, just a, I became a huge fan, right? And and now that obviously we're here, and none of that would have happened if you hadn't bothered to try to put your stuff out there, and then we made that connection. However, it was, and I, I've been blessed. I've been fortunate that um, that's been kind of repeated uh, a couple of different times within people within the print and play community, with you know some other designers, or just 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 some other folks uh, in in the industry that I would never have interacted with. Uh, it's, it's, it's weird. Um, just like, it's, it's a kind of almost like a pinball effect, right? Like, but I don't know if you feel the same way where it's like, I feel like, uh, my interests inside the, 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 the hobby bring me this one direction. And then I, I meet some people and then I bounce off of those people and, and games. And then I meet some other people and it's just like kind of pinballing from one to one. And it's like, it's a fascinating, crazy ride. Um, and I don't know where it's going to end up, but I'm, I'm along for the ride. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, definitely. For all the, the evils and, and terribleness of certain things about social media, this is one of those things that it, it's really good for. And that's connecting with people that in, in normal circumstances, you would have never met, you would have never crossed paths with. And now you can mm-hmm. become friends, you can get to know each other, you can play games together, you know, that, that kind of thing. And I'm so thankful, especially thankful for you and everything you've kind of helped me along with, with, with these kinds of, you know, print and plays and, and help me with play tests and things like that. But there's been so many people that have come alongside 
just because I was willing to get out there and make some mistakes and, and create these files and say, hey, I, I want to do the best I possibly can to reach out to this community, no matter how big, no matter, no matter how small. And then another thing to think about, this is something I was, I was just thinking about while, while you were talking about as far as Kickstarter and whatnot. There's a lot of people that will scroll the, scroll down the Kickstarter campaign page to see if there's a link to a print and play file, not because they want to play it, That's not right. because they want to print it out, just because they want to see it. They want to see the cards. They want to yeah. see. They want to kind of get a better feel for how the game works. And so, creating this file is actually going to help you with a lot of people that aren't even going to print it out or you know cut it out, play it or anything like that. They just want to see how it all works together. So it's just another thing uh, to think about is is having that as an option. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And thanks for mentioning that. Like when I look at Kickstarters now, um, if I will scroll down, I'm, I'm that person who will scroll down or, or do a command F or, a, or control F or alt F, whatever, and search for the, for the text, uh, print and play or, you know, print, uh, it, does it appear on the page, you know? And, um, and I get disappointed if it's not there because I just want to take a look. And then that's the other thing, by the way, I, I know it's like, we're, we're super into this now we're getting close to the end, but another best practice that uh, we can, you know, kind of share with designers is, um, you know, if you don't, like, a lot of people are concerned, like, I don't want to put my full art files out there, right? I don't want uh, the potential for this to be, you know, kind of uh, pirated or whatever it is, you know. You don't have to. Um, you, a, a lot of folks in the print-and-play community just want to get a sense of how your game plays. And and so if you provide, like, say, a low-art version, um, you know, that or maybe like a smaller, a smaller, just to get a sense of the gameplay, maybe play a couple of rounds. Maybe if you have like six characters in the game, maybe you just provide two or whatever the heck it is. Just, you know, give, give us a sense. Um, that can be very, very helpful to kind of wrap my, especially for me, because me, I'm the type of person who I struggle with learning a game just by reading the rule book. Um, I really am more of like a visual and tactile learner. So if I have the images of your game to go at the, the actual game to go along with your rules, that helps me wrap my head around uh, your game a whole lot better and a whole lot more efficiently than if you just, you know, just had a link to your, your current working rule book or whatever the heck it is. So yeah, yeah, that's uh thanks for reminding me about that one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Another thing I just thought about is there is there such thing as a game that's just too big for print and play? Like I feel like card games and smaller games kind of lend themselves because it's a little bit easier yeah. to, to do. Is there such thing as like a giant euro, like a game like Scythe or something like that that's just too big yeah. to even you know worry about a print and play? I mean, you would think so, right? Like you would think take a game like Root and say, well, nobody would ever be crazy enough to PNP that a game of that size. Or uh City of the Big Shoulders or uh, Magic Realm, uh, <laughs> except that all of those that I just mentioned, they all have print and play versions. They're all these massive, massive games with hundreds of components and you know hundreds of cards and whatnot. And there, there are people within the community who would be bonkers enough to actually do those things. Like I said, those personality types who are like, "I'm in it for the challenge," <laughs> you know. Um, there are actually like a few people who actually use like machines like the Cricut um, or the uh, the Brother Easy, like, these 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 machines that allow you to cut sheets uh, automatically to kind of like mass produce. <laughs> so bringing elements of mass production into uh, into the process just to just to be able to like you know automate certain certain tasks about like making these games. So 
in answer to the question, uh, I don't think there are games that are too big for PNP, but you know, obviously the bigger a game is, the fewer people are going to be willing to make it. And I think the sweet spot, like Hunted is a great example. Like you've got 70 cards in the Hunted deck, another 15 cards in the location, um, and you've got a couple of boards and a couple of tokens. Like I think that that's a great size that a whole bunch of people um, are willing to just like invest the time. And maybe it'll take them three, four, five, six hours, but at the end of it, they've got a really cool game. You know, and um, and and I think they're lifelong fans. They're they're just champing at the bit for whatever whatever else uh, you know is going to be coming from you because of their positive experience. You know, with uh, with hunted. Yeah, and I definitely hope so. And and actually, the my space game, the Final Flicktier, I did a, a print and play version of that. And one thing I learned in that uh, file is that there are a lot of people who want the board. The board was this giant. You know. Trying to think how big it was. It was two big neoprene playmats size. Yeah. You know, so it was really, really big. And there are a lot of people who wanted that kind of cut up into you know normal U.S. letter size yeah. pieces, and then they'll cut it out and then they'll kind of put it all together and laminate it, whatever. But then there's some people who wanted one giant file. They said, just give yeah. me the whole thing at one time, and then I'll do my own special thing as far as printing it out and things like that. So that's another yeah. thing to think about. If you have a really big board, have those two options. Have it in there where it's broken up page by page, but also just put the file in there. You know, of the whole board in one big image so that if, if somebody wants to print off all at one time, maybe they've got a massive printer or maybe they want to go take it to a professional service that has a you know, really yeah. big printer that could do that. It gives them that option. Yeah, definitely. And we we haven't even scratched the surface of what apps people use for these things, right? Like um, when you when you talked about that, um, uh, I... I, I uh, would fall into the category of like, yeah, give me your largest board. Give me your 48 inch by, by 20 inch board because I have a, I'm on a Mac. I use a Mac and uh, I have a Mac app called uh, split print, which will allow me to be able to take that large file and then cut it up into uh us letter size, um, you know, uh, pieces, puzzle pieces, if you will. And then, I can choose whether I want to have bleed or no bleed, you know, border, no border, all this stuff. So um, people who are a lot of people who are into print and play, they also kind of acquire uh, image editing <laughs> skills because of the difficulties that I mentioned earlier. Like, you know, you you'd never know what you're going to get. And if you're if you want to print that game, sometimes you have to edit the files yourself, um, you know, uh, so. Uh, if you have Photoshop skills, image editor skills, or like uh, I think uh, there there are f- uh, free or, or open source uh, alternatives like uh, GIMP is an image manipulation program. Uh, Inkscape is another one that's been I've heard used. Don't use those myself personally. Um, I know one really prominent uh, and very accomplished longtime PNPer. They do all of their amazing graphics work in PowerPoint. If you can believe that, like when mm. I found that out. That blew me away. Like they use PowerPoint and they're doing stuff that looks professional, looks really, really amazing. And I'm like, I assume that they're using like, you know, Photoshop or Illustrator or something like that. They're like, no, I do everything in PowerPoint. I'm like, what? How do you? <laughs> so, yeah, bananas. 
Yeah. Well, actually, let's let's turn let's change gears just a little bit. Let's talk about some of your best practices as far as making these games. Because I mean, basically, what you're doing is, from a design standpoint, you're creating prototypes. Effectively, right? You're you're taking mm-hmm. uh, digital files and turning them into something I can actually play on the table. What are some of your best practices for that? As far as cutters, you just mentioned a bunch of programs and apps. Oh yeah. Uh, maybe glues yeah. And, and different materials. Any of those things that stick out as something that would be really helpful for game designers. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, very good question again. Like, um, I always tell people who are just starting out in print and play or whatnot, you know what? If you have a pair of scissors and some paper, then you've already got uh, a very basic kind of print and play, you know, um, uh, toolkit. Like, you know, I, I really want to, like, you know, because when people like come in and let's say the, you know, like, because what, what one thing that we like to do in our in our uh, board game groups for print and play is we like a show off, right? Like, you know. Here's my latest thing. I showed it off. I use these techniques, whatever. And uh, that can be intimidating to folks who are brand new. They're like, oh, my gosh, how did you do that? You know, <laughs> and and what I try to communicate to folks is, well, you don't you don't get to that right off the bat. You kind of work up to it, you know, so start small and um, start with a pair of scissors, a good pair of scissors. Start with, um, you know, uh, the right paper, like, you know, uh, cardstock. Like I get cardstock from Walmart. Um, 110 pound cardstock and it costs like, uh, six bucks for a hundred and uh, 150 sheets, you know, so you don't, you don't have to spend a lot of money at first. And then you kind of, and, um, playing card, uh, sleeves, uh, can be, can be very helpful because a very basic technique, like I mentioned earlier, is just print it out to plain paper, print it out to cardstock, pair it with some old playing cards and slip it into a sleeve. And you've got a functioning prototype. Uh, cards, you know, so that's at at the most basic. Now, um, when you want to like, you know, take it up to the next level, um, a lot of people use paper trimmers, you know, like uh, uh, Fiskars is a a very famous brand of um, paper trimmer. And they come in like, you know, sliding blade style or rotary blade style, or the uh, there's a there's a guillotine style, you know, like if you've seen like at the at the print shop, if you want to cut a whole bunch of papers quickly, then you can like have this thing, this this uh, this this contraption with a with a with an arm that comes down and you know cuts a whole bunch of papers quickly. Those are options as well. Um, if you want to take it a step further than that for cutting, you can use an actual rotary handheld rotary cutter and a self healing mat. You know, like uh, I mine mine is an Alpha brand self healing mat, and I have a Fiskars brand rotary cutter. And then you need to have a uh, nice uh, ruler. I like, I prefer a metal ruler with a cork backing and cork backing is very important or some kind of tacky backing because when you put that ruler down, you want it to have friction and not slide when it's like against the paper or against the mat. Very, very important to keep your cut straight, right? If you're, if you're trying to use the ruler as a guide for a straight cut, well, you don't want your, the force of your cut to make the ruler slide and then, make your cut, uh, not straight, you know, so those types of things. Um, but yeah, so anywhere from a good pair of scissors all the way up to handheld rotary cutter. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of options in between for cutting things. I mentioned, um, circle punches, uh, in the past. Again, I'm, I swear I'm not on the payroll of Fiskars. (laughs) I believe it's a German company. It's just that I'm a huge fan of their, their their stuff um it costs more but it's a lot better in my experience than kind of like the generic stuff that you can get like a craft store like a michael's or a hobby lobby 
you'll get, you know, you know, uh, corner, I'm sorry, you'll get a, a circle punch for like $5 and it, it just doesn't work right. So, you know, I spend 15, $20 for my Fiskar circle punchers. They come in various sizes, but they, they last longer and they're very, they're much more precise, uh, in the edges that they make. Yeah. Now what if I want to cut the, uh, the corners off of these yeah. cars? So they're not just, uh, sharp. Yeah. Yeah, so you 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 picked up on that one, right? Like we haven't even talked about the the one thing that make that that separates, uh, let's say, less professional cards from more professional cards is are the corners rounded? And uh, one of the frequently asked questions is, well, what do you use to round those corners? Um, you know what? Uh, there are corner punches. Uh, that are available. And um, so one inexpensive option, it costs about $10 to $12. Um, it's called the Kadumaru Pro. And um, there, it's uh, it's it's uh, available like on places like Amazon uh, for, you know, uh, and, and basically it comes, it's, it's, a, it's a little contraption that you put the edges of the cards in and then it will punch the corners out. And it's got like three sizes, small, medium, and large. Um, so that's one uh, kind of thing that that uh, that you can use. And then there's other ones like there's a there's one called the Crocodile, which has a larger corner radius. Um, those are also thing- and then then all the way up to there's a company called Oregon Laminations that makes corner punches that are in the thirty five forty dollar range, but can handle more more cards per punch. And um, you know so. You you can start small with the Kadumaru Pro that I mentioned, or um, you know, you can work your way up to like more more kind of professional uh, options. Yeah, definitely. And I know you use a laminator as well in yeah. your your print and play. Tell me about that. Yeah. So um, what I have found more recently is that um, I can print out. I, I can I can rapidly produce prototype cards by just printing to a sheet of cardstock double-sided and then inserting it into a thermal laminating pouch, you know, something, um, let's say, uh, that they come in like different thicknesses. I use three millimeters. They also come in five millimeters, which makes a thicker card. And then, um, you can run it through a laminator. So I use a very, you know, inexpensive laminator, uh, Amazon basics, costs about 20 bucks from Amazon. And um, I find that, you know, that that produces uh, cards laminated that have a very, very nice snap um, and shuffle just like you can shuffle regular playing cards. The one thing they don't do is they don't feel like regular playing cards because they're a little glossier, right? Because if you ever laminated anything, you'll notice that the, you know, the, the surface is glossier. It's not, it doesn't have a matte finish. Um, thermal laminating pouches with a matte finish are available and can get you closer to that look of a, uh, of a, like a retail playing card, but they're like three times more expensive than, you know, normal laminate. I get, I get a hundred sheets of, uh, laminating pouches uh scotch brand for about um ten dollars and i think that that's great bang for buck you know so um but yeah i like to laminate playing cards i think that they're a very fast and convenient way of producing prototype cards for sure gotcha and then one of the things that i was really just impressed by is how much people print on a monthly basis and just like how much ink that they use and so tell me about what you kind of the hack you figured out as far as you know never running out of ink and not having to spend you know thousand bucks a month on it (laughs) yeah so it's uh, it's it's not really a hack it's a service so i have an hp printer an hp color printer um 
just for folks who might be curious, it's an HP Office Jet Pro 8710 model or 8715. And I bought it from Costco. It's normally like 150 bucks, and I it had a, it was 50 bucks off, so I got it for 100 bucks. And um, you know, so obviously we all know that printer ink will kill you, especially like you know uh, inkjet ink, um, just because they're so expensive and you have to replace them so often. Well, uh, HP offers something called the Instant Ink subscription plan, and um, basically think of it like Netflix for ink. <laughs> right where you um you basically sign up and uh then you select how estimate how many sheets of paper do you estimate you're going to be printing per month because they have different levels of the plan and you can start with as little as five dollars a month for like a hundred printouts a month i started at that level quickly realized that i I exceed that very quickly. So then I, I, I bumped it up to currently I'm at the 300 printouts per month plan, um, which costs about $10 a month. So I pay $10 a month. And um, the, 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 it's really, the cool part of it is the printer is connected to my home Wi-Fi. And so it has sensors inside of it that can tell when the ink is about to uh, be depleted and then it just auto orders the replacement. And then in a couple of days, the replacement will show up. So I don't even have to worry about it. Like I don't have to do anything manually uh, because the printer itself is telling its home base, Hey, I'm running low on ink, send, send uh, reinforcements. <laughs> so, so it really works out for if you're into uh, print and play because I'm essentially never running out of ink and I just have to pay $10 a month, which for me is worth it because I obviously print a lot. Yeah, that blew my mind. And that was something I thought, man, this is what a lot of game designers need to be aware of. People that are at home printing out so many pages a month of just prototype after you know different iterations and changing things, that kind of thing. This is something that maybe could help save you some money. Maybe you don't have to go over to Kinko's or FedEx or anything and, and print something. That you can print it at home and do it for maybe a little bit more cost effectively. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Martin, do you got any other best practices, either you know, from any any side of things? Anything else kind of sticks out in your mind as, as something that, that people should just be aware of? I mean, I guess in general, I just want to like send a message out to any game designers and publishers who are listening. You know, um, uh, just g- give us more attention. <laughs> don't don't forget about that. There's there's a significant portion of your. Um, of your audience who might want to have uh, an option to be able to uh, print and play your game for a little less money, you know, um, you, and, and, and don't think of that as like, there, there's a temptation. Like I've seen an attitude from some folks where it's like, well, we don't want the print and play version to replace or eat into the sales of the, uh, of the retail version. And um, the reality is that, that's that you know I, I I really don't think that that's a concern. I think that the goodwill that you would generate um, from the print and play community and all the intangibles that we talked about earlier in this podcast kind of far outstrip you know the number of people who would say uh, I'm you know I, I'm I'm not gonna spend for the uh, for, for the retail version because I have access to the print and play version because you know um, there's there's costs associated with making the print and play version as well and if like to the, the print and player who's interested in your game if the calculus is well with materials and ink and uh, all this other stuff and whatever it's going to cost me more 
to uh, make the print and play version, I'll just I'll just go ahead and buy. And I've I personally made that 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 calculus in my own head. It's like you know, um, in terms of investment of time and whatnot. You know what? I'm interested in that game. I'll just buy it. <laughs> so so um, I think overall, you know, the, my message would be: you gain a lot more uh, from goodwill and just like you know, making connections and just all this other X factor intangible stuff just by providing a print and play option. Uh, in your Kickstarter, a print and play, an official print and play tier, um, you know, than uh, than than if you didn't. And I have gotten super involved. I'll tell you one more story. Um, there's a there's a there's an outfit called uh, First Fish Games, and they have a they, they published a game called Town Builder Kooferden, C O E V O R D, and um, which I found a print and play version of it, and I got to know them. Um, you know, like late of. Uh, like, like sometime in the October, November of, uh, of 2018 timeframe. And then I put this thing together and then I brought it to my family get together, a holiday get together last year. And my family were just like, they, they fell in love with this game. They loved it. They just couldn't get enough of playing this game over and over and over again. And I would post these pictures on Facebook and, you know, board game, uh, uh, Facebook about this stuff. And the publisher, um, got in touch with me and said, Hey, you're officially one of the biggest fans, early fans of our game, because you had access to the print and play version. Nobody else <laughs> has access to our game yet. And uh, she basically ended up inviting me to help demo the game at last year's Origins, uh, 20, I'm sorry, this year's Origins, which was my very first board game convention. So that was an incredible experience. And, that I, and, and I ended up like manning a booth for a couple of hours a day. And, 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 and that, that was a really life enriching experience for me. Like I, I would never have thought to attend a board game convention uh, this early on in my, you know, in my growth and in my kind of evolution in the, uh, in the, in the, in the hobby. And it all happened because of, you know, just there was a print and play version that, that uh, I was able to make. And I was able to have like real, real, great experiences with my family playing this game months before the retail version um, was available. And then I ended up, you know, helping the company sell copies of their game and they sold out at origins because it's a really good game. So anyway. Yeah, that's awesome. And and going back to what you were saying, as far as people being afraid that the print and play is going to eat into their sales, it really just doesn't even make sense as a mindset. Cause you gotta think there's a lot of people who want to print and play and then they, they, maybe they print out, maybe they cut it up, maybe they make the thing, maybe they don't. But then they end up going out and buying the retail version anyway. So that yeah. doesn't necessarily make sense. But then there's also the other side of people that just want a print and play. They're not going to buy your retail version anyway. <laughs> They're not going to buy it. And so right. offering a print and play version for those folks gives them an option, gives them a way to play your game, to actually get it on a table and maybe post about it online or maybe just enjoy the experience of playing the game because it's fun. And so I yeah. really just don't understand why people would say, no, I don't want to do that because it's going to eat into the sales. Also, another thing, it lets your game live forever. Because it's yeah. just a file, you know. You don't have to have a, you know, with once the print run is sold out or you know goes away, yeah. the file still exists, and so people can still access the game. And so, it from all angles, it just makes sense to have one of these. You've gotten your game into the hands of more people than would have had it otherwise. Number one, yeah. and number two, we haven't even talked about all the people uh, that you're enabling to have access to your game in other countries outside of the United States. Yeah, that where uh, this stuff is like prohibitively expensive. Like I was born and raised in the Philippines, and I can tell you for a fact that 
hobby board games cost like there's a markup of like 50 to 75 percent more over and above MSRP just because of it's so expensive to get these things over there. So places like Brazil, places like the Philippines, places like all these other countries, Egypt, like so, so that's why so many of our members in the print and play hideaway are from these countries. So they're enthusiasts. They just happen to be to live and have grown up, you know, in, in countries where it's prohibitively expensive, but they still want to be able to print and play is a way for them to still be able to participate in this wonderful board game hobby of ours. Yeah, that's a phenomenal, phenomenal point. And just something to keep in mind. It's something that it's so easy to not think about if you're not from one of those places, you know, if you're only from a place like the States or Canada or, or Europe and, and you've always had access to, this, access to these things and you've always had access to Kickstarter projects. And, and every time you go into back one, you can slide down the list and find your country and, and they ship to you. You've never had to think about it. You know, the, yeah. there's a lot of people around the world that don't have that as an option. So this provides a really cool way for them to be able to play and, and enjoy your game. Well, Martin, Absolutely. this has been fantastic, man. Really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or anything you want to leave listeners with, leave designers with? You just had a really some really good advice in that kind of last segment. But any, anything else you just want to kind of close things out with? I mean, I, I just want to say thank you to you, Gabe. Uh, thank you for all these experiences. Like, you know, this is officially the first time I've ever been on a guest with a podcast and that anybody actually was interested in, you know, in, in what I had to say. So thank you for that. Thank you for just like, uh, being a, kind of like a role model of a designer who's like super open, uh, to, you know, uh, folks in the print and play community and, and being very kind of encouraging of that. And, uh, I just wish that there were, uh, more people like you, and more people like these other wonderful uh, designers who've, uh, you know, joined our group and, you know, got asked questions, come to know more. Um, you know, um, we're we're here. We're uh, we're vibrant and, and, and committed members of the community, very interested. And um, we are very, very interested in partnering with all designers. Uh asking, uh, answering questions, um, you know, like opening up our, our, uh, you know, experiences and knowledge and what we've learned and sharing that. And, um, yeah, just give us a chance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate those kind words. Hopefully, you know, things like this podcast and this episode will help, help drive more people to this part of the hobby. I think it's important. I think it's valuable and for a lot of different reasons, you know, that we've been talking about for the last hour or so, and, and hopefully it just continue to pick up momentum and more and more people, We'll, we'll join in. But Martin, again, really Thank appreciate you. everything you have done for the community. And uh, thanks again for, for you know answering my questions and kind of hearing me out, not only in this podcast, but also for months and months and months now of me just trying yeah. to figure out how this whole thing, thing works. And so thanks again for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Good luck with all the future print and play projects. I, I hope your printer continues to work and doesn't you know <laughs> rise up against you and try to, <laughs> try to take you out. And uh, good luck yeah. with everything else you got going on right now. Thanks for having me, Gabe. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?